Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with modern days unipolarity is precisely that. The West is leading Ukraine down the primrose path. We don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes. To bring chip productions here to the U.S. I'm Andrew Collingwood. I write for Bornbrook magazine and other online outlets on geostrategy, economics and British politics. Hi, my name is Philip Pilkington. I'm a macroeconomist who spent nearly a decade working in investment management. Both of us believe that the world is undergoing a once a century geopolitical and macroeconomic shift. After decades of American leadership, the unipolar world is finally ending. Since World War II, America has set the terms of global trade and it's backed these up with its control over international institutions and its enormous military power. But things are changing. China is still rising. Russia has reawakened. Europe, America's longtime partner, is in long-term decline. Each week, we'll be dissecting three stories that illustrate the shift. We'll be talking about economics and geopolitics, but most importantly, we'll be talking about how they influence each other, how resource competition drives the great game of empires and alliances, and how that story is the great emerging tale of the 21st century. This is Multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week, Tim Cook, Elon Musk, Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, Jamie Dimon. Lately, a who's who of American business power has been sent over to meet their Chinese counterparts, with embassy-level diplomacy increasingly in the deep freeze. Are the Americans using their corporate rock stars to do what the State Department can't? Meanwhile, inside China, as the post-COVID recovery slows, we may be about to see the economy of Keynes' dreams swing into action. Will it be a clunking fist or a jumpstart to the heart? Finally, Germany's recession dials are blinking red. Will the airbags inflate on their auto industry? Or is this the moment their national chest cavity is speared on the steering column? But first, America's capitalist missionaries. Things haven't been going so well in relations between the United States and China of late. The US has been looking increasingly desperate to restart relations, uh, diplomatic relations with China after quite the freeze since the great balloon scare of 2023. And they have been given short shrift by the Chinese. The Chinese seem quite unwilling to restart relations. However, that's at a government level. At a corporate level, things have taken made quite the move. Uh, over the last week or so, there has been a, a great exodus almost of um, uh, America's great and good uh business magnates and industrialists across the Pacific to China, where they've met a, met a range of uh, high-level Chinese officials and indeed their Chinese corporate counterparts. Uh, so we've had famously, most famously, of course, Elon Musk, who never seems out of the news. Um, he's visited China, where he was indeed greeted by the Chinese foreign minister, which is, uh, to my eyes, at least quite a remarkable contact that he has there. Jamie Dimon, who is the uh, CEO of JP Morgan Chase, uh, perhaps America's most high profile and uh, 
politically best connected investment bankers, was also in China um, meeting with uh, Chinese business leaders and uh, Chinese government officials. But there was also a special party that went across, a special uh, delegation, if you like, um, of uh, senior uh, American uh, business people. And the list of people who were uh, making that trip is is really a who's who of the leading names and leading uh, companies of the uh, the great American business community. There was uh, uh, Mary Barra of General Motors. There was Jeff Bezos, of course, of Amazon. Uh, Warren Buffett of uh, Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, Tim Cook of Apple. Bob Iger of Walt Disney. And uh, Indra Nui of PepsiCo. Uh, so really some great names there. And of course, uh, they were meeting on the Chinese side, almost equally well-known uh, names and brands. There was Jack Ma of Alibaba. There was, uh, and uh, uh, apologies to listeners if I'm absolutely murdering these Chinese names, but uh, Yang Guangqing of Lenovo, Zhang Yaqing of Baidu, uh, Tian Guli of Bank of China. So this really is an extraordinary, um, an extraordinary meeting, uh, both of, as I say, the, the the great corporate leaders of America and the great Chinese corporate leaders, uh, Chinese officials, and separately to all that, uh, Elon Musk of uh, Tesla and SpaceX, and uh, also Jamie Dimon of uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, representing obviously the investment banking community. So, what's happening here? Well. Many things could potentially be happening here. It's all very interesting. As I said, at first, there has been a big freeze, uh, or maybe not a big freeze, but things are at the very least frosty at the moment between the Americans and the Chinese. The Americans have been making increasing overtures over the last weeks, perhaps as much as a month ago, to try to restart relations, to try to start warming things up or or, or taking the real uh, frost off um, of uh, bilateral relations. And they've all come to note the Chinese seem uninterested in restarting relations in the current environment. And here we have these, um, the the great and the good, the the the, the economy makers of America, difficult to think of a collection of people more important for the American economy uh, than these people. So what's happening? Well, first of all, it could be these these folks are panicking. <laughs> they, they realize how uh, reliant America is on China and, of course, how uh, China is also interlocked with the American economy, and they do not want a catastrophic breakdown. I think that's quite clear. They've made that clear. Um, but it could be that they're taking matters into their own hands and they're going across to try to make sure that trading relations can continue despite the deteriorating environment. So that's one option. Another option is, is the Chinese could be welcoming this to show that we really don't like the American government, but we're quite happy still to do business. And it's a kind of great PR success for China. The third option, of course, is that you know, only Elon Musk can go to China. You know, it, it, it took Richard Nixon, a, a quite a zealous anti-communist, and uh, uh, Henry Kissinger uh, to go to China and to do a deal with uh, Chairman Mao and China. 
Uh, it, it's something that perhaps a Democrat who not quite so hardline might not have been able to do. So maybe the Americans are sending people who can uh, go out there and uh, do some outreach, do some glad handing, do some uh, soft talking and cozying and hoping that perhaps uh, these guys can do things that politicians couldn't and start to reheat relations. I'm not sure which of those three options you have in mind, Philip, but it's really quite a delegation. Um, what are your views on this? I think it's probably right to say that, you know, I think we discussed something similar on the on the podcast before, and, and my sense of it was that if you're a really senior American business leader, you're not going to do something incredibly controversial um, that might, you know, have, you know, the American State Department turn around to you and go, why are you doing that? Or, you know, just people around you saying, why are you doing that? I mean, you couldn't imagine like Elon Musk going to Russia right now. I mean, like that, that is completely unimaginable. And I, I, I don't just mean that completely facetiously, like Musk has been, you know, somewhat critical of some aspects of the Ukraine war, even though his company Starlink is providing the um, the uh, the internet for the Ukrainian uh, AFU, as far as I understand it. So, you know, uh, but you couldn't imagine that right now. So, you know, with a huge group like that, uh, many of them with political connections and ties to the US government, I mean, most of Elon Musk's uh, firms, some of them provide uh, goods to the US government. Starlink, obviously, in Ukraine is an example. Uh, Tesla's heavily reliant on government subsidies, green energy subsidies. Um, uh, SpaceX is obviously very much so tied uh, to to the U.S. government, so so you know you kind of put the pieces together and you say, um, you know, at the very least, um, the American government can't be unhappy with this. On the Chinese side, I think we have to rewind a little bit. The Chinese, when they reopened the economy earlier this year after their COVID lockdowns, um, actually made very strong signals that they wanted to continue business as usual. The new premier there back in March, uh, Li Kuang, said that he heartily welcomed foreign companies. Um, he, quote, said, China will open its door wider and wider, invest in China and take root in China, unquote. So China want to continue doing business completely. Um, as you say, I don't, I don't think they care I mean, they obviously do care about what the U.S. government and the relations there, but I think they um, they view the economic connections as more important. Um, I think this actually speaks a lot to Chinese strategy in the world and to how the Chinese are. Um, you know, a lot of kind of, I would say, more reasonable Chinese analysts always focus on the fact that China's always been a trading nation and it's always been a, you know, war has always been a secondary War and conquest have always been a secondary uh, consideration for China. If there is something called Chinese imperialism, or if there is massive Chinese uh, influence in the world in the 21st century, and I think there will be, and I think there might even be some some things that you might call imperialistic, I think it'll more so come through trade than it will through war. So it's it's not surprising that they that they'd welcome uh, welcome with op open arms the business community. I just highlight two other things that were said that might make it easier for us to kind of analyze this in a sense. One is that Elon Musk was quoted by the Chinese foreign ministry as saying that the um, American and Chinese economy are quote unquote conjoined twins. And Jamie Dimon 
said specifically there will be no decoupling between the United States and China. And further than that, he said, look, trade might diminish between the two countries. I presume there he's, he kind of has in mind that the Americans do want to try and get uh, reshore some of their manufacturing and so on, which is probably a good idea, but that this would be quite a gradual process and there will be no decoupling. So that to me, very briefly, kind of suggests that the business community know what it would mean to just pull up the drawbridges. They know exactly what it would do to American industry. It's something we've talked about on this podcast before. It would destroy it. The supply chains are too ingrained. And in terms of who it would impact more, the Chinese or the Americans, there's absolutely no doubt about it. It would impact America much more negatively than it would impact China. Yeah, I was reading a little bit uh, this week with regards to um, some of the uh, line items, if you like, that the American economy relies uh, uh, on China to actually get and it's you know everything from antibiotics and basic medicines right up to quite complicated capital goods it really draws into sharp focus the more limited options that the u.s has with regard to blockading china if you like either uh, technically through economic measures or uh, physically with the u.s navy without doing catastrophic damage to themselves at the same time it, it really always hesitant to repeat the errors of the strategists before 1914 were at the end of the first great era of globalization, uh, which had been driven by uh, things like uh, the telegraph and uh, the, 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 so the telegram and the, and uh, steamships and the like um, and, uh, and, and railways. Uh, but it, you know, it really does seem a, a case of economic, mutually assured destruction at the moment if the two of them raced headlong into a uh, conflict, I would say. On the more narrow point of the diplomatic relations between the two, I think the core problem here, the core problem that we've got is the US has engaged in a round of quite aggressive sanctioning. Some individuals, which often isn't mentioned so much, including members of the Chinese government and administration, some companies which we know about, and entire sectors. And on the latter, the entire sectors, as we've seen with some of the higher-end semiconductors, it seems quite plain to me, and I think probably the Chinese as well, that they're designed not for the security reasons that the US contends, but directly to try to hobble Chinese economic development. And I think the Chinese understandably have taken very unkindly to that. And what they would like is they would like to resume relations with the United States, with Washington, at quite a, a high level, a, a kind of a top level, top to bottom looking negotiations and relations where all of these things were on the table. The US, on the other hand, would like to say, okay, we've done all of this now. Let's get back to the kind of cooperation we had where we were, we were cooperating bilaterally on very specific areas that were in both of our interests. You know, we were cooperating on the environment and climate change. And, you know, our guy in charge of that was speaking to his Chinese counterpart and we were cooperating on naval matters. So, you know, somebody within the Pentagon or from Annapolis or wherever was dealing with his Chinese counterpart within the People's Liberation Army Navy on naval matters. We want to go back to that. And the Chinese are, are kind of saying, well, no, 
we can't go back to that. You've you've engaged in a whole range of unfriendly acts, and you expect us just to to take that on the chin and go back to discussing things the way we are. No, we would like top level discussions that looked at the whole relationship and how it's going to be. And of course, the US don't want to do that because they don't want to put things on the table that they might have to then backtrack on. How now could they say that we're going to relent on the semiconductor ban, for example? We're going to relent on you know the the Huawei ban, the, the, you know the ban on the Huawei for high end chips, for you know example. Like that, that 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 would look awful, and it would undermine their job, you know, reasons for doing it in the first place. So perhaps kind of corporate level discussions are a way to untie the Gordian knot somehow, where these guys can talk about the sort of things that would be mutually beneficial and mutually profitable for them in terms of trade and relations. They can perhaps pass messages from their respective governments that uh, that a politician perhaps couldn't be seen to be saying publicly. And perhaps it's a way of untying the Gordian knot somehow. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. That's that's almost definitely the idea here. Clearly, the diplomatic relations have seized up very badly. I mean, just to give some context, the most recent kind of military issue was um, a Chinese plane allegedly getting too close to an American plane. And the, um, the Secretary of Defense, I think it was, said, you know, we need to be talking about these things, otherwise these uh, incidents might get out of control. Now, I think that's hyperbolic. I don't think it was, it didn't look like a particularly serious incident. But, you know, these seem like attempts to kind of get the Chinese and the Americans talking at a state or governmental level, and just none of this stuff is working. And I I think it's absolutely, as you say, the Chinese just aren't going to forget about, like, really aggressive sanctions, I think they might be willing to forgive and forget if those sanctions were removed. That's a possibility. But I think as long as those sanctions are in place, it's a no-go for the Chinese. And that shouldn't be particularly surprising. If the Chinese were doing it to America, I think America would have the same reaction. I think if the Chinese were doing it to Britain, Britain would have the same reaction. It's a very natural reaction to such an aggressive action. I think the issue here is that the Americans think by sending over the... um, you know, America TM, that just because the Chinese embrace uh, the business leaders, that this will somehow thaw relations. I'm very skeptical of that. I don't think it's a bad thing for all the business leaders to go to China. I think it's a very good thing for Jamie Dimon and uh, Elon Musk to be signaling that there won't be decoupling, because if they didn't, frankly, at a certain point, people might start getting worried about the viability of some of these companies if things got really bad. So that's a positive. And that's not just a positive in general. That's a positive for like Elon Musk's business. So it's very much in his interest to do that. But I I just, I, I don't really see that this is something like, you know, it's, it's almost like a, you've fallen out with a friend that you used to know and you fell out with them years ago. And then you kind of, you know, you used to not attend certain parties that they went to or social groups. And then you kind of start turning up and start warming the relationship back up and you put, you know, whatever happened in the past. I don't think this is one of those situations. There are very clear things that the Americans have done that have really angered the Chinese. And, you know, until at least those things are being discussed with everything on the table, I just don't see 
how it can move forward. I actually agree with that. I mean, it might take some kind of catastrophe on one side, particularly needing the other side to deal with a certain global incident that forces the two of them together somehow, either from you know extreme mutual need or by one of them being suddenly weakened somehow um, that forces them to kind of swallow their pride, so to speak, and meet on the other's terms. You are 100% right that all of these corporations, or all of these corporate leaders, I should say, have an interest in China. And if you look down the list, they all have a very particular interest in China. Uh, for instance, you know, General Motors is, you know, China is the biggest car market in the world. Um, uh, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, I'm not 100% sure of his interest in China because of, um, you know, Chinese have their own competitors for Amazon, which dominate the market. But Warren Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway, Berkshire Hathaway is a conglomerate these days, and it is heavily invested in, you know, various companies uh, within the China sphere. And he's just divested from TSMC, the big Taiwanese chip maker, I, th I believe specifically because he's concerned about tensions in the region and the possibility that that investment could go to zero at you know at some stage. Tim Cook of Apple, of course, Apple has a lot of their products produced in China by a Chinese company called Foxconn. Uh, Walt Disney, uh, China is perhaps its biggest market these days. Uh, PepsiCo, of course, uh, again, China, a gargantuan market for Pepsi's products. So uh, all of these people have a tremendous interest in, in maintaining relations or, or, or maintaining the something like the current a trading environment with China. So let's, you know, perhaps we're reading too much into this, Philip Pilkington. Maybe it's it's literally just these, these guys going to try to desperately make sure that things don't go completely off the rails. I find it very difficult to believe that the Chinese will come back to that old relationship of kind of lower level cooperation on a, var a variation of or, or variety of very specific subjects. So, you know, one example would be that 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 kind of close encounter with a, a Chinese jet intercepting an American plane. It might have even been a spy plane of some sort. But these kind of these kind of intercepts happen regularly. You know, they happen over the Baltic with uh, Russian jets uh, intercepting uh, NATO bombers on practice runs. They happen with. Uh, NATO jets in, in, intercepting, you know, Russian bombers approaching Alaskan airspace, for example. But even between the U.S. and Russia, there are some lower-level relations there. For instance, they coordinated very heavily together uh, over Syria. Right? They were absolutely at odds with each other when it came to their aims and goals in Syria. The Russians were supporting Assad and the Americans were trying to topple him. And relations between Russia and the US were at the time souring apace, moving towards the the present uh, denouement. However, they still cooperate at a low level. And I think the Americans would like to go back to that and maybe use that as, a, a, as building blocks or something more in the future. And I think the Chinese don't want to go back to that. They want to restart cordial relations, but at the higher end, they perhaps would like Xi to meet Biden and discuss exactly what the Americans are doing and what they intend to do 
in the future. Whereas the you know the US, of course, don't want to put any of that stuff back on the table. So I think you're generally right. I'm not sure there's a the the, the seems to be a deal to be made between the two at the moment. Uh, I just saw on Amazon, to my knowledge. The Amazon China connection is that Amazon is now selling its own branded products, and they're they're built in China, um, so far as I know, or at least some of them are built in China. Um, uh, of course, yeah, of course, that's right. They get loads of this stuff from China. Excuse me, I should have known that, Philip. Specifically, their own yeah. products, because my juicer has just broken, and I've had to order apart from China. So I know that. I know that specifically. Yeah, I, I, I remember when I got married, I bought some uh, chinos, and before I got married, I could afford tommy hilfiger chinos and after that i was wearing amazon's own brand of chinos and they were made in china so let a thousand towers bloom on a different matter on a different economic matter uh, you've been writing uh, about this exact thing for unheard at the moment in that the chinese uh, recovery has been too speed and people uh, who are making forecasts don't seem to understand the basics of how the Chinese economy works. Yeah, we've spoken about this before. Um, I think I think this might be a little bit of an opportunity to take maybe a slightly um, uh, a, a, a slightly too early victory lap, but um, but I, I think it's worth pointing out to keep the to keep things rolling. China's uh, recovery has been a little bit mixed out of the lockdowns. The services sector is booming. Um, so the hope was, you know, the economy would open up, services would take off, people would go back out to restaurants and so on. Same thing as we saw in the West. And that's completely happened. Now, lying in the background of that is China want to get their economy more consumption-based than investment-based. It's a very, we've discussed before, it's a very heavily investment-based economy, um, and they want to tilt that toward consumption. So um, reopening and encouraging kind of consumers to go out and buy is a key sort of more long-term strategy, long-term policy goal for the Chinese. So that worked. That worked as planned. And in fact, the the services have actually been surprising to the upside. They've been beating forecasts um, in recent months. The manufacturing sector has been a little bit more stagnant, um, and that's raised some concerns. I saw that earnings analysts on Wall Street effectively had been demoting China and actually getting extremely bullish about the West. The Chinese one in particular seems to be about this um, slight decline, or not decline, just the stagnation of the manufacturing sector. Now, what's happened as well is that the Chinese have recently come out at the beginning of June, just a few days before recording, they announced that they are mulling a new property support package to boost the economy. There's a bunch of components they weren't all reported, but one of them is uh, down payments for some areas and top cities could be trimmed. This is what we've talked about in the past. If the, the Chinese set growth targets, now, when they set growth targets of 5% of GDP a year, what does that mean? It means something very different from a growth target in the West. The West don't set growth targets, not really. I mean, they do growth forecasts, so like the central bank or the treasury will do growth forecasts, but growth forecasts are not growth targets. The Western approach to economic management is two-faced, I would say. On the one hand, we give responsibilities to, for example, the central banks to manage our economies, and they, they claim that they can do it. And on the other hand, we don't set growth targets. We have inflation targets. We don't have growth targets. And we don't have unemployment targets. Much could be said about the inflation targets, given that they have been so out of whack for the past 
very long time actually it, deflation in the in the previous period and inflation in the current period summary on that is our economic management system doesn't know what it's doing a lot of the time can't articulate itself clearly and isn't working according to the own terms it sells itself the chinese system is very different they set growth targets they say i think at the moment it's they want around 5% gdp growth in 2023 that means real gdp growth after inflation and this is what they do if they 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 let things rip after they open up the economy and they see how things work out and the western analysts tear their hair out light their hair on fire you know tilt over the waste paper basket and go completely ape and they go oh no the the recovery is not being met because they think of the economy like they think of the western economy as this sort of free riding thing that's kind of sort of steered by the fed maybe um the chinese economy isn't like that when the chinese see that consumption's rebounded and the consumption hasn't been adequate to stimulate the manufacturing sector you know to kick it into gear they come out and they say okay well we're gonna try and juice the housing market and i'd say the next step they might not even announce it is they'll instruct the state-owned enterprises to increase capital investment that will be a classic um, thing. Or they'll go to the state-owned banking system and they'll say, increase lines of credit, run with it. And this is what they'll do. They'll just throw everything at the wall until they see their growth numbers get hit. I think that's what's going to happen. And I think that's what we're seeing now with these housing supports. On that matter, before we uh, start this podcast, I did a little bit of trawling and I went on to Bloomberg and I found exactly the point that you making the chinese for example are uh, considering extending the tax incentives for electric vehicle purchases they <clears throat> they had a range of uh, tax incentives for low-end uh, ev purchases that's the kind of their own equivalent of teslas for example or or hybrid cars like the toyota prius and they they ran out at the back end of last year and now they're considering extending those it's a kind of um i guess the chinese equivalent of a kind of cash for clunkers scheme that we had at the during the last financial crisis to try to gin up uh, bigger purchases within the economy and get people to spend their money and i guess the chinese are doing the same thing as well i think these things are exactly as you say where you know, they look at the economy, things perhaps aren't exploding out of the blocks as they expected they would after the COVID restrictions passed. So what are they doing? They're looking at a whole range of stimulus measures to try to help things along and boost things and move closer to that target. So it seems increasingly like in the second half of the year, what we might see is that this this growth really coming into fruition. I would say with regard to COVID though, one thing that people should note is that Chinese are moving towards the, the peak of another wave of COVID in, infections. Um, I know that forecasts for the you know COVID waves and numbers of infections haven't had the best record um, in the Western world, uh, but for what it's worth, uh, it's estimated that this wave in China will peak at some time around the end of June. And it'll be at 65 million infections per week. Now, you know, perhaps COVID isn't the lethal uh, illness that 
you know, some of us perhaps feared. However, you know, if you catch COVID, you, you know, you might have to take a few days off work. You might feel sick for a week or two. You might be expected in a country like China to isolate a little bit. And that's bound to suppress economic activity a little bit when you're moving toward levels like 65 million infections per week. I know the Chinese country is huge, but, you know, even if you have a working population of 700 million, uh, 65 million is a fair old chunk of that to be infected at any one time. So you might find, you know, some of this mixed recovery is because they're just coming out of very strict restrictions now. So, you know, this, you know, illness has to work its way through the system. And, you know, even when we have very bad flu seasons in the UK, it affects economic activity a little bit. So that's something to bear in mind as well about the recovery. But, while I thought that they might have exploded a little bit more out the blocks economically after they lifted COVID restrictions, it's looking increasingly like your idea of the you know the global economic decoupling is uh, very much coming to fruition. Yeah, I think it's I, I think it's probably worth doing a a little bit of a um, mea culpa here to just help people understand at least my understanding of the Chinese economy. I I, I really think it's misunderstood. So. When I started working in uh, finance, I actually did a lot of work on the Chinese economy over my whole career, and uh, I almost constantly watching it um, for a variety of reasons. And at the beginning, I totally bought into the Michael Pettis narrative. Um, if people don't know Michael Pettis, um, he's a professor of finance at uh, Peking University's uh, Guangzhou, I think it's pronounced, School of Management. Um, and he's a pretty uh, well-known uh, writer on the Chinese economy. Um, we had a, an episode on uh, Peter Zehan the other week, and you know we said uh, that he kind of lacked some economic expertise in many ways. Um, I don't think you could say that about Pettis. Pettis is a, is a pretty competent macroeconomist, um, and I think he has some experience in finance as well, although I might be incorrect about that. But I kind of, um, you know, I started looking at the Chinese economy uh, probably about 2014, 2015. And my base case um, understanding would have been a Pettis kind of understanding that it was effectively like the West. Um, at the time when Pettis became very popular, which was around then, it was around the mid 2010s, um, we just experienced a big uh, boom bust cycle in 2008, 2009, uh, big property collapse. And we were living with the consequences of it at that time. There was deflation, very low interest rates. The housing market was just beginning its recovery around that time. Maybe it wasn't even. It was a couple of years away from it. And um, Pettis' narrative sounded really convincing. If you just looked at the kind of basic metrics, private sector debt levels in China, um, you know, house price growth, which was just a way with the fairies in a sense, um, everything really kind of fit. And it was only over time watching every single time getting it wrong, being like, okay, the bubble's about to burst. And it, it goes down. The property bubble goes down. And you go, okay, here it is. The banking system's about to collapse. And then it doesn't. It all reverses. That doesn't happen in the West. If you see a housing market go down, like the prop, uh, Chinese property market went down, I think, in 2015, it doesn't get back up. You know, it's like a boxer that's just taken a KO punch to the head. It doesn't get back up. And the banking system's sure to follow. But the Chinese um, property market just behaves in a different way. And the more you, you, you watch it, the more you realize that the government's pulling the strings on all this stuff. And I think even Pettis and, and people like him started to realize that later in the day. And they just said, well, they can't do it forever. 
I'm not so sure about that. Long run, you definitely want your economy more balanced. You don't want it reliant on these enormous gobs of capital investment, and especially on this on this probably overvalued property sector. Although we can talk about that separately, it's 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 interesting to to think about what the valuations in the Chinese in the Chinese property market actually mean. But you know that's probably not an ideal model. Your your ideal model is probably to have uh, rising consumption, rising Chinese living standards, and you know more of the economy geared toward actually giving the Chinese people the wealth that they have. I mean, that's what happens when you raise your consumption. And that is what they're aiming for. But to say that just because the current situation is not optimal, or even perhaps very desirable, does not mean that the current situation is not sustainable. And I think the reality of this is that the the Chinese can continue on doing what they've been doing for 15 years and juicing the investment side of the economy and just keep testing that consumption side, seeing if a reopening or an emergence from a recession, if the consumption side can pick that back up on its own. Um, I think that all that's perfectly viable, and I think that's what we're going we're gonna to see moving forward. I'm not saying the Chinese economy will never again fall into a recession, although I think it's pretty hard for the Chinese economy to fall into a recession due to the nature of the economic structure there. But I'm definitely saying that I don't think you're going to see one of these big private sector debt wipeouts or anything like it. And the people who have been calling it have been calling it for 15 years. Draining the ruin. So one country that is falling into recession at the moment is Germany. They had a minor economic contraction uh, recorded just recently. And uh, in addition to that, uh, manufacturing is not doing well. Uh, the German economy, of course, it has been uh, Europe's manufacturing powerhouse, one of the final holdouts of uh, manufacturing excellence within the European continent. Um, what's happening there, Philip Pilkington? Well, we covered this recently, just to give some context around the German situation. We start off uh, just after the war in Ukraine and the spike in the energy prices. And we got these headlines and the likes of The Economist and so on saying, Germany is going to deindustrialize. It's been addicted to Russian energy for too long, addicted to other inputs from the Russian economy. And this war could lead to Germany deindustrializing. And that narrative sank by the wayside very quickly. You can discuss why that was, but I think in both of our views, it was completely wrong for that narrative to ever go away. After that, the PMI numbers, which is the survey data on manufacturing, where uh, statisticians call up the, the people who do the orders in manufacturing and ask them what the level of activity is, were giving very negative readings for quite a long time. And I think people who said that we should should still be taking deindustrialization seriously pointed to these PMI numbers and said this looks really bad. And the people who were on the team, there is no industrial deindustrialization, uh, said no, they're just survey data. Um, they're not real economic data. Well, recently, I think we had in the podcast that you know new manufacturing orders had started to fall. We were starting to see some real activity. It wasn't just these survey data. Now, I'd say the surveys are pretty good. They tend to lead uh, economic indices, real economic indices, pretty well. They're pretty reliable. So I thought those criticisms were pretty bad to begin with. But 
for those who were making the case, the new orders had fallen earlier this year. Now what we've seen, as you say, is Germany has fallen into a technical recession. Now it's not a real recession. The layoffs haven't started yet or anything like that. But it's definitely showing some underlying stresses in the economy. And it's becoming very, very difficult to ignore that there's something wrong in Germany. I mean, just to give some context here, it was pretty much consensus up until a few weeks ago that Britain was getting absolutely pummeled by the um, energy price dynamics, the chaos in Europe, the inflation, and so on. And most of the kind of um, agencies, global agencies like the IMF and so on, at the bottom of their list, the most pe- the, the economy they were most pessimistic about was Britain. And some people attributed this to Brexit. Obviously, the people who don't like Brexit attributed it to Brexit. Um, and that actually got traction. That That was thought to actually be that was thought to actually be a real point of analysis. Well, Britain has yes, yet to fall into a technical recession, and Germany has fallen into a technical recession. So um, I would say, of, of course, you can, you know, if, if, if you've been saying that that um, Brexit stuff is all political, you can take a victory lap, okay? Definitely, 100%. But much, much more deeply, the, the, the British economy is really vulnerable, not due to Brexit so much, but it is really vulnerable to these trends, and its inflation numbers are actually worse than Europe. The fact that Germany has led the European uh, continent into technical recession, at least among the bigger economies, is a big deal. The German economy used to be one of the more resilient in Europe, yet now it's actually leading uh, the continent into recession. And I think that that, um, bears some scrutiny. I think you're right. I I mean, on the Brexit matter, of course, the difficulties that Britain have had have, have been blamed on Brexit. Uh, by certain quarters, I'm getting pretty tired of that. I expect that if England loses against Australia in the cricket in the next few uh, weeks and months, that uh, Brexit will again be at fault. I don't understand why people would possibly think that increasing energy prices will not have an effect on Europe's manufacturing competitiveness. The you know the bottom line is that. Russia provided a lot of cheap natural gas through pipelines. There are no other alternatives available at that price level. So they can talk about prices coming down to somewhere near the uh, pre-war level. A lot of that has to do with things like demand destruction. A lot of that has to do with um, efficiency gains. And ultimately, if they're going to replace Russian gas with LNG, even temporarily, LNG is simply more expensive. It's much more expensive. It's something like 50% more expensive because you have to compress it to hyper-low temperatures. You have to send it in very expensive specialized container ships across oceans, and then you have to have special facilities to decompress the thing and regasify it again. That all costs a lot of money, much more than it costs to shove it down a pipeline from Siberia across Eastern Europe and into Germany, essentially. Of course, this is going to affect European competitiveness. How could it not? Manufacturing is extremely competitive. Like, do the Germans make really good cars? Yes, they do. But are Volkswagens significantly better than Kias or Toyotas? Are Mercedes 50% better than Lexuses? I don't think they are, probably. And it's like that across manufacturing. And in fact... In manufacturing, one of the reasons why so much manufacturing is concentrated in certain sectors and hubs in the world is because you need scale 
to make the whole thing work. You'd like you, you need to reach a certain scale to make it work. It was always America's great advantage that the domestic market was so big that companies could reach a scale that allowed them to outcompete other countries uh, companies in the world. Uh, it's the same with China these days. So if suddenly you take one of the inputs and whack it up by even 20%, you know, not 100% or 300% or whatever it was at one point last year, but even if you whack it up by 10 or 15%, that's huge. You know, if you increase the cost of your labor force by 15 or 20% overnight, that's a serious problem. And, and, and it would be completely uncontroversial that that company would have to deal with its labor costs. We're always talking about um, manufacturing being offshored to countries with lower labor costs. Well, why aren't we talking about lower energy costs? European energy was already more expensive than energy in the United States, and now they've increased it further by another 10 20% at least. So I don't understand why it's controversial at all that Europe would be struggling in this way. I don't understand why it's controversial at all that the sanctions that Europe has imposed on, on, on Russia are going to negative, have negative consequences for European industry especially. We saw it last year with very energy-intensive or very gas-intensive industries like fertilizer production, which uses natural gas as a feedstock for example. We saw it with things like uh, metal smelting, which obviously is very energy intensive, uh, cement manufacture, glass manufacture, chemical manufacture. All these things are really either energy intensive or petrochemical intensive, and they were the first to take the hit. Now we're seeing it filtering down to other industries. Now, I'm not saying that all European industry it's going to close. Yeah, I think stressing the logical case is really important and we should keep doing it. I think we've become kind of like, speaking of Brexit, we've become the Stephen Bray of stressing the logical case on the energy issue. Stephen Bray, for those who don't know, is a guy who stands outside Parliament and screams about Brexit all day, every day. I think his unofficial name is Stop Brexit Man. I, th I think we're the Stop Brexit guy of the logical case that LNG is more expensive and will ruin your competitiveness. In terms of the empirical case, um, I've been trying to look at that, and I've been tracking it quite a bit. It is very early days um, to, to try and put some metric on. I mean, I think in about a year, we'll be able to come up with a clever deindustrialization metric that'll show it clearly, uh, you know, one metric that doesn't rely on too many things. But I've kind of come up with something that I think is interesting. So I'll kind of relate it here because I haven't really published it. Um you have services, PMIs, and, and manufacturing PMIs. So again, these are survey data which tell you, you know, how, how quickly the service sector is expanding or contracting and how quick the, the manufacturing sector is expanding and contraction, contracting. Now, generally speaking, the two things should expand and contract together, obviously, because services use as inputs manufacturing. When you go down and you, you go to a restaurant, you're sitting on chairs that are you know, uh, manufactured. I mean, that's a terrible example, but you can use your imagination. Um, occasionally, the two will diverge. So for example, when you're headed into a recession, the manufacturing uh, PMI will go down quicker than the services PMI. And again, that's kind of obvious why, right? If, if you stop, if, if less people start, start, start going to the restaurant, uh, so, you know, it'll still have some activity, but the restaurant will say, geez, we've lost some customers. We better not 
order new utensils, right? So the, the manufacturing will always lead the services sector down. It, it, it'll go first. So what you can do is you can create a kind of a ratio between the two and you can look at how it behaves. And what I found in Germany recently, and again, this is very provisional, but it's interesting to try and put some numbers on it, is that the ratio between uh, services and manufacturing PMI currently is declining at a rate that is associated with a recession of the level of 2008-2009. Okay, So that obviously famously is known as the Great Recession. This is the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression in Europe. It's, the current rate of decline is associated with a really bad recession. And yet, Germany, although it's registering a technical recession, it's not in a real recession. It's just got two quarters negative growth, very small, like 0.1 negative growth. It hasn't seen a climb in unemployment. And yet, with even this very mild, quote unquote, recession, they're seeing this ratio that I've created decline at the same rate as we saw in 2008-2009. Now, that raises the question, if manufacturing is contracting, especially relative to the service sector, this quickly with such a, a not even a slowdown in, manuf- in economic activity, really a stagnation in economic activity, what happens when the recession eventually hits? There will eventually be a recession. In my opinion, it'll be in the next 12 to 24 months, but maybe I'm wrong about that. But there will eventually be a recession. And if manufacturing is getting hit that badly just from a relatively stagnant economy in Germany, you can only imagine how badly it's going to get hit in an actual recession. If, if we're at 2008, 2009 levels of this contraction now, what's it going to look like if we have a 2008, 2009 style recession? I think that's what we should be thinking about. Fresh 